Basically, I'll just start with that we have the Four Noble Truths, as Peter discussed last week and as we're going to be exploring um, over quite some time now and coming up in the next few months. So the first one is that there is suffering. The second one is there is a cause of suffering. The third is that there is an end to suffering. And the fourth is that the way out is the Eightfold Path. And we will be fully exploring the Eightfold Path here, which is all of the practices and techniques and insights into um, how to end the suffering. But in the meantime, we are first going to talk about what do we mean by suffering and this word dukkha and the ways that we can translate it. And let's see. All right, great. So um, basically, there are a lot of you may have heard, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people talk about this. And some of the ways it's translated is all of life is suffering and, you know, things that sound pretty grim. Um, I'm part of the, I guess, group that would say I translate it more as suffering is present. Suffering is a part of being alive. There is suffering. Um, And there's also different ways to think about the word suffering. Uh, One way is that there's dissatisfaction, like the Rolling Stones song, I can't get no satisfaction. So you know it's bad when even uh, rich rock stars can't get enough, right? So, um, and then we often talk here about stress, uh, distress and confusion, as Peter uh, likes to point out. And, you know, I do feel that there are many, many nuances to the suffering that we experience um, and, and to you know, what's causing it and all the different ways that it can show up for us. So clearly there are very obvious sources of suffering, uh, like death and grief and loss and heartbreak, um, betrayals and injuries. But what I find more interesting to explore in a way at this point, anyway, in this conversation is the, uh, unnecessary suffering that we create Uh, which I think is a lot, (laughs) and that we also collectively create as a society, as a culture. But I'm just going to start with with ourselves and self-created suffering. Um, And for me, uh, this has been probably one of the most thrilling discoveries and rewarding parts of my practice, Um, because when I started really practicing, I, I really did start to notice just how much suffering I had been creating for myself and others. Um, And I also think this is really encouraging to explore because I think that with diligent practice, we can experience relief from this kind of suffering fairly quickly, um, as opposed to maybe um, kind of a more further down the path, uh, our relationship with some of the the more... um, intense kinds of suffering that happen in our lives, right? But um, but certainly I noticed for myself an improvement pretty quickly on on certain levels of self-created suffering once I began to understand certain things. Um, So I want to say that the mind is a dukkha-making machine. Um, It really loves to generate a lot of scenarios and a lot of thoughts and a lot of conditions for suffering. And I can say from experience that just conceptually knowing these truths and understanding that conceptually does not actually 
make it go away, that it took, that it takes practice to start putting, um, practice in. And that's when we start to meet the experience of our suffering. And as we, as I also like to mention that Pema has taught, uh, like burn up those seeds of craving and clinging. So she calls it Shempa, but I can really relate to this practice of meeting our suffering, really experiencing it in the moment, not resisting it. And in that way, we are able to recognize the clinging and the craving, and we're able to burn up those seeds, uh, which helps to get us on the path toward feeling more peace and freedom from this. So Vipassana helps to create some distance. Uh, This practice helps us to observe what the mind is doing to create some space so that we don't identify as strongly or at all with its narratives and to interrupt our reactivity and slow down our dukkha-making machine, which the mind uh, is really responsible for a lot of that. Um, I also found this really beautiful article in Tricycle from a Buddhist teacher who had been a nun, uh, Thanissara. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but... So I want to... Oh, no, but this is the female Buddhist monk, um, T-H-A-N-I-S-S-A-R-A. Tanisara. Tanisara. (laughs) It's very beautiful. Um, So she wrote this great article, and I'm going to quote a few paragraphs from it just because I felt like it expressed so well what I'm, I'm feeling that I, you know, not putting into words quite as well as she did. So one of the things she says is, Actually, dukkha is natural and not suffering. It becomes suffering when the mind identifies with phenomena and grasps. The meaning of dukkha that conveys this process is derived from the breakdown of the word into do, which means du, which means apart from, and ka, or akash, which means space. This gives the sense of being apart from the spacious, the perfect, and the complete. In this way, dukkha conveys the deepest anguish and dilemma of the self, which is its state of separation from the whole. But I love this paragraph because when I think about the kinds of narratives that have caused me distress and fueled negative habits and actions, I can identify it with a feeling of distress, of things not being right, incomplete, inferior, lonely, lost, not good enough, and then all of the unskillful ways I tried to fix those feelings. So at the root, this did feel like a dilemma of the self. I felt outside, separate, and not part of the world I felt I was supposed to be a part of. Insecurity was rampant. I later realized all of this was an illusion. This is a dark side of the ego. The illusion of self can be a pumped up one or a diminished one. Both versions are illusions of separateness and cause suffering and unskillful action. So for me, I could just really relate, you know, I, that was, those were my words I just read to you, of just kind of when I look back on when I first became more deeply immersed in this journey, I was living in New York City. Many of you know some parts of my story, but um, I was really suffering. <laughs> and I started going deep into uh, practice and going to retreats and a lot of things after work. And it was because I was really creating a lot of suffering and I was then I was over drinking and and 
going out a lot and I was a musician and a DJ and I was just out and doing a lot of things and I was really just uh, running from all kinds of stuff and so you know when I think about this suffering that comes from feeling like you are separate from the whole and all the different narratives that the mind creates and all of the insecurities um, once I started to recognize those patterns, oh, here, I, I wrote this. Um, I wrote, I've never found an elixir so lasting as the one I, make, I began to discover with practice when I began to recognize those patterns and meet them with compassion and understanding and begin to let go. So that was very transformative for me, the part of the practice that also included compassion because I started to... Um, sit with the suffering, uh, get support with the retreats and, and the you know the sangha that I was going to in New York, and along with my my practice, I started to get some space and started to experience some enough distance to get perspective on you know the kinds of thoughts I was having and the kinds of feelings I was having. Um, so another quote from Panasara. Um, as we inquire into the moment, dukkha becomes dharma, or nature, rather than me that is wrong or bad. As we listen more deeply to suffering, we begin to notice non-suffering. The heart realizes its innate courage, strength, and invincibility. This journey through pain and suffering burns away the impurities. And what is revealed is something pristine, clear, and beautiful. So, you know, we could we could certainly spend a lot of time talking about how is this possible and why does this work, but all I can tell you is that that paragraph really resonates with me because that that is the experience I started to have, which was amazing that you can transform your suffering into peace and into clarity and that what remains is, is just something that I couldn't have imagined before. And... Um, yeah, something I certainly certainly motivates me to continue to practice. Um, now that being said, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the other kinds of dukkha that we mentioned in the beginning, which is the very real suffering that happens um, just by being a human being, right? And there's so many things we cannot control, things that are going to happen. We're flesh and blood, and she also has something uh, to say here too. So. To have a conscious relationship to suffering is different than having an unconscious one. We will all experience pain simply due to our incarnation into form. It is part of being human. We experience bodily pains, ill health, fatigue, hunger, thirst, and as we get older, the pains of aging. That's just the way it is. Freedom from dukkha doesn't mean eternal youth or that we are never going to have a headache or feel irritation or loss or get betrayed or hurt. Freedom from dukkha is not abdication from the human race, but a deeper acceptance of how we are, an acceptance that brings both equanimity and a clearer response. And I just want to uh, finish with this last thing and then I'll uh, quit reading. <laughs> um, we don't wish for suffering, but once we understand how to be in relationship with it, it becomes the means through which we mature as loving and wise people. Awakening quickens through wise contemplation of suffering. So I think this is really important to explore because it's the relationship with suffering and 
Uh, so we now have talked about self-created kinds, and now we're also talking about the very real, uh, you know, pets dying, people lost, uh, tragedies happening in the world around us. And so it's not that we are going to push those things out and deny their reality or repress our feelings about them, but then again, we're going to uh, cultivate a more skillful relationship with those realities and um, and bring some equanimity into into that. And one of the things that's sort of encouraging, yes, I'll use the word encouraging, <laughs> is that uh, even in a world that has so many problems, climate change and war and all kinds of things, um, there is really a lot of benefit to finding peace within ourselves and meeting our own dukkha and then being able to, uh, for, for one, create less dukkha uh, in the world. We are less likely to create suffering uh, for others if we are resolving our own dukkha. And then also, even with an eye toward uh, the world's problems, that we are more stable and able to be an engaged Buddhist, an engaged activist, and be there for others who are experiencing their own suffering and distress and confusion. So there really is a lot of benefits on all sides of this um, equation <laughs> to to do this practice and to cultivate this skillful relationship. Um, so I guess maybe I went through that pretty quickly. So I guess I'll talk a little bit more about what I see as self-created dukkha that from my own experience. And that would be you know, many of you may be familiar with like rumination, uh, looking into the past and, and, you know, rehashing old mistakes you've made, um, having all kinds of goals for the future and then yet not being motivated, uh, starting to feel despairing that you'll never meet them. Um, certainly we live in a society of comparative thinking all the time. So we have social media, we have advertising, our entire, uh, you know, culture is driven by um, encouraging us to always want more and be more and need more. <laughs> so that's rampant. And and then we become our own worst enemy. So we, uh, we, you know, we might have a really great life, actually, but we can certainly think we don't because we can look around and think that we should have all kinds of other things. Um so also worry, unnecessary worry, worry about things that you can't actually control. Um, and, you know, when I was younger, I would start to play around with this in my mind because, I, you know, I lived in New York City for like 25 years and I would build up all these various things I should watch out for. Like, for instance, I'd hear that somebody got electrocuted on a manhole cover and then I'd start avoiding man, manhole covers. <laughs> and then I would hear somebody fell down stairs going to the subway and I used to race down the stairs to go to the subway all the time. And then I would worry about racing down the stairs. And then I would hear an air conditioning fell, unit fell from a building and then I would stop walking near buildings, you know? And at a certain point, I'm like, okay, I can't, uh, you know, avoid everything, right? Like I can't, there's so many variables and permutations and I was collecting so many different stories at, that finally one day I just stopped doing it. You know, I just was like, I won't know. I can't prevent everything, right? So it just finally got to a point where I saw how ridiculous it was. Now, that's not to say that there aren't certain 
skillful, you know, observations. Like I still will not jaywalk in New York city. (laughs) I don't trust taxi drivers, you know, but I just realized the futility of trying to plan for every potential outcome. That was one of my early realizations living there. Um, so yeah, the mind is extremely powerful and in order not to become a victim of the strength of our mind, that is why the practice is so important that we can have this right relationship as we are going to get into with the Eightfold Path, um, all the different ways that we relate to our mind. And, and then, of course, the actions that we choose to take once we have um, Thich Nhat Hanh, I was rereading his book, um, The Heart of the Buddhist Teachings. And you know, one of the first things he talks about is is the power of stopping, you know? So um, when we create that space between what's going on, the distress and confusion, and then we pause, we stop and we pause before we actually react uh, to any of that. So whether it's, um, you know, writing an angry letter or going out to a bar or, you know, any other action that might, you know, we're trying to relieve the the pain and the suffering, but we're just going to create more pain and suffering. So this initial um, part of the practice of just stopping and being still and sitting with our experience and also having the support of a Sangha and having the support of our teachers and that the teachers can be a video, a book, a course, um, real life, you know, in person. But um, I do think it's important to not just be doing this completely by yourself in isolation. (laughs) So there is something really great about having other people who have um, explored this process, which can get very delicate as you try to figure out, (laughs) you know, what is going on with my suffering. And, and, you know, also uh, trusting yourself because what do I need to help me meet the suffering? Um, you might need different things at different times. And I did, I do feel that I'm grateful that some sort of inner voice guided me uh, early in the process to, to take care and not just, um, I don't know, to just try to like feel out what makes the most sense, you know, and uh, definitely was aided by the fact that I was going to a weekly sangha at the time and also aided by uh, going into retreat experiences, which for me were very fruitful in developing this. So, and of course, I'm still, you know, learning every single day and in process and in practice every single day. But th- this was just like my kickstart into it. So, I think uh, that is also one of the benefits of experiencing a period of suffering because sometimes when you really have uh, your regular way of being is thrown out of whack, you know, whether it's due to bad news or due to habits that have built up that are taking you in the wrong direction or, you know, some sort of thing that sort of wakes you up, um, it can be, you know, no mud, no lotus, right? So that's, for me, that was true. For me, things had reached a crescendo, and I realized I really need to, to kind of go deeper into this and to understand what's going on, and, and thankfully um, was able to do that. So I think uh, a measure of encouragement there as well, that um, it might be in your 
most uh, confused and distressed time that the light begins to shine through and that real peace can start to come to you because you have reached that point and you're ready to explore and you're ready to get out of the cycle. <laughs> you're ready to move forward um, in your practice and then it can be um, can really create a lot of momentum. So that was my experience. Um, okay, so I think that's where, that's kind of the part that I've prepared anyway. So I want to open uh, up and see, uh, first of all, um, how this is resonating with you all. Um, is there anybody that wants to share maybe something that that they feel resonates with them or do you want to share, you know, some experience you've had with dukkha or your definition of what you feel suffering is, or even, even maybe something small from today, like you were stuck in traffic or, or some, you know, even what seemed like a minor um, moment that could serve as a, as a teaching moment for yourself on dukkha. Is there anybody, or if you have a question, let me know. Have something yes, uh, Brian has a question. I'm a little bit curious, and perhaps this is a different topic um, in regard to dukkha, but about um, the idea of dukkha being like a uh, sensate experience, like that is something that when you are doing insight practice that you can experience. So not so much like the global dukkha of being a human in the broad sense, but like the moment-to-moment -moment awareness of it. Is that something that is um i don't know uh that's something i'm curious about yes i i would say it's a very embodied experience i think that uh where we start to resolve the dukkha is actually feeling it in our in our body and feeling feeling uh whatever we're experiencing and meeting it um in our practice and part of that for me for me is definitely uh knowing where it is in my body and any tension or tightness or, um, yeah. So for me, it's not just a conceptual idea or I know that there's suffering in the world or that humans are suffering. It's not an abstract thing. It's, and that's why I was, uh, just saying too, it, it can be like something that just for you, we don't even have to, this doesn't even have to be you. You can, you can experience dukkha just, right, just from getting like a negative email from somebody, right? It doesn't have to be a, a big tragic thing. It's amazing how much we can be seized by um, our, our an experience like that of feeling insecure or irritated or angry. Um, any moment like that is a moment that we can learn from and that we can meet with our practice and, and um feel it in our body is that along the lines of what you are asking yeah yeah it is i think i've had that experience that you're talking about where when you when you meet when you're very aware of it because there are times in the past where i'm not very aware that i'm reacting to something and then you know you're the more aware of it you are the more responsive and helpful you can be to yourself and other people so and, and i think it also what i what i was meaning with ties into that uh that moment like where our mind kind of separates from our experience and says you know creates sort of like the eye experience versus the um 
the sort of, I don't know, more connected ex experience where your, your mind isn't having to do that extra struggle against the reality it's kind of building for us. Can I comment about that, April? Sure. Um, in the Vasudhi Maga, which is something that was came out hundreds of years later, time time Buddha, they had developed a understanding of dukkha as having three um, characteristics. One of them is called dukkha dukkha, which is pain. What happens when you when you buy a body? What happens? Hunger, fatigue, uh, illness, all that stuff. Uh, then there's uh, what's called Sankara Dukkha. And that's the Dukkha that the mind creates uh, based on prior experience or karma, you could say. And then the third one is called Viparanama Dukkha. And that's the Dukkha that's associated with impermanence. I call it the... Uh, um, the dukkha of the unexpected, unanticipated, unplanned for. Uh, so, uh, to me, that's an interesting consideration is that life is changing all the time. And we somehow, the mind wants it to stay predictable and um, along the lines of what our plans and expectations are. And the other thing that comes to mind is uh, something that Chogyam Trungpa said, who was a very well-respected Tibetan teacher. He said that uh, uh, when you get really serious about your practice, it's one insult after another, which really works for me. Um, it, for me, it's, it requires humility. I have a streak of perfectionism in me and um, I have a hard time with my flaws, but we all have them. So one of my, my uh, aspirations is the ability to turn humiliation into humility. And that has a lot to do with understanding dukkha and being less burdened by that. Um, does anybody else have a question or something you want to share um, or your own definition of dukkha? Yes, Leslie. So, um, one of the things I've always uh, connected with my thinking about dukkha is the concept of resistance. And I often see in myself, actually I see it more in other people than mm -hmm. I do it myself, because it's always easier to see somebody else's uh, suffering, isn't it? Um, but I, I have a, a beautiful example of uh, a, a friend who lives right next door to me who is absolutely resistant to reality. Almost, uh, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable how fully resistant she is to the reality that she's in. She doesn't like the color of her neighbor's house. She doesn't like the political signs in her neighbor's yard. She doesn't like the weather. She doesn't like the fact that her husband doesn't help her. 
her entire conversation with me and this woman is I used to be kind of be annoyed with her but now I'm really trying to develop compassion because she is suffering so Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. because she is completely she has such um, I don't know if it's high expectations it's very specific Mm -hmm. expectations of the way the outer world is supposed to be and um, if you walk into a restaurant with her the first thing she will do is complain about something in the restaurant she has a radar (laughs) for details or aspects of the circumstance that do not meet her standards or meet her liking the woman is riddled with uh, uh, migraine headaches Ah. I keep wanting to say to her I know something that might help your migraine (laughs) headaches could I share it with you but I I uh, she's resistant yes and so I'm just wondering if you if that resonates with any of the rest of you I I try to see that I mean I see that in myself that when I get irritated or dissatisfied or uh, confused uh, it's often because I'm just not accepting the conditions that that reality is presenting to me in this moment if I can just catch myself when I do that breathe and take that as uh, Tara Brock says the sacred pause (laughs) um, then I you know it makes it a little bit easier for me to let let go of that dukkha let go of that expectation not I'm, I'm certainly not a master of that but well, yes, agreed, and and I think it's an it's a good, you know, story and example of how uh, people create a miserable reality, right? Because it's yeah. not because it is it's it's true it's resistance to what is, but she's also choosing details and creating a narrative in her mind, and she's not you know looking at the things to be grateful for the things that she could focus on, right? So. So our mind is so incredibly powerful. What we choose to focus on and what we choose to um, make into our world, right? So um, I, I have a friend who um, really becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like she's got the victim mentality and every narrative is like, she didn't get invited to this and somebody forgot to tell her about this. And then when she's finally invited to something and sitting at the table, instead of laughing with the others and and talking about a fun recipe or enjoying herself, somehow the conversation turns to nobody told me that, or I wasn't texted about this. And then of course, what's going to happen, people feel uncomfortable. And they don't want to invite her to the next thing. So so this is an example of how our minds can really run amok, our minds and our emotions. And, you know, sadly, it may be unhealed issues from the past, whatever it is. But even it, so, but even if you begin the process of awareness um, and create that space, and, and first, yes, meet the experience, you know, I am, I am lonely or I feel left out or whatever that reality is that you think that you're experiencing and then but then taking that pause and then using the practice to know um, that that 
there is some illusion in that, right? That, that, that there is in some way you are creating that experience and that reality. And then, then on a more realistic and compassionate level too, then being able to say, okay, well, what do I need? Right? Like, like I know that Leslie, you are also somebody who likes to get into the, you know, what are we going to do with this information? (laughs) You know, like, like, how am I going to attend to this? And how am I going to care for this? Um, but, but I think there's just so much power in that initial realization that, oh, my mind is telling a story and, and I'm adding to that story and I'm choosing details from the world around me to, to continue and, and expand that story. And then that story is a story of suffering, <laughs> you know? And, and so it's hard for this woman to see, oh, I'm living in a relatively safe place in Winter Park with a beautiful neighborhood and many things nearby. And it's an, it's such a gift that I can go to a restaurant and, you know, all those things. So, yeah, lots of self-created suffering. Oh, I, I see it every day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's, well, it's also then, of course, we have whole industries to try to buy us out of that self-created suffering. Right. And, and there's whole economies built on it. You know, there's whole, right. uh, whole businesses built on it. <laughs> right. Does anyone else uh, want to, sh- you know, anything to say? Yes, Steve? And then you also have all of these uh, plenty of online people who uh, can give you comfort by helping to validate your feelings that uh, come up in all of these thoughts. Mm. Uh, I have a, a cousin who I try to help because she has MS. And, uh, you know, there's a consequence to just having so much tension uh, and resentment uh, flowing all the time. And some of that flows, you know, towards me also. And it's like you say, it's just these stories that just uh, are so pervasive and they're so solid that they just, you know, even though she says she meditates, uh, I, I say to her, well, why are you meditating when you can't even see your own habitual reactions and you can't let go of anything that you have in these thoughts? is so negative towards every everyone seems. Yeah. I can't help that. Yeah. I know. It's hard it's hard. It's hard when we I witness it all the time and, and, and like Leslie was saying, you wanna to try to poke them on the shoulder and say, Hey, <laughs> I know I can help you and you don't have to live this way but um how I don't know what it takes sometimes and and um it's also another reason that I feel grateful and blessed that, you know, we are here in the Sangha because we're able to see it. Um, and I don't know the answer, um, that we try the best we can to open that door for people, <laughs> but it is, it's happening a lot. <laughs> um, um, if I can say something, Sharon. Sure. Hi, Sharon. Um, hi. And Leslie, what you brought up is so, um, interesting to me because um, on Monday night, my uh, HOA had an annual meeting and it was supposed to have been a, um, uh, an election. And we did not have a quorum, meaning not enough people showed up. 
And I think that I've, I've been in, uh, in this community since it was built. And people come, people go. And I've seen and observed people um, myself. Uh, most people, I think, have their own lives and want to manage and deal with their own lives. But just like you described, they're upset with their outwardly, um, they're focusing on the out, uh, outward um, surroundings and very critical of other people rather than living their lives in a way, and I'm not saying everybody, but there are people who um, don't show up at the meetings because they don't like the negativity that seems to come up. And a lot of it stems from ignorance. And this is my feeling about it. Um, I find that the biggest problems are that people don't understand things and they complain. They want them to be the, whether or not they're consistent with bylaws or things that are documented um, and how to do things in a way that is going to be uh, to conform. So there's a great deal of distress because I've experienced the fact that I'm usually when I'm at a meeting, I'll, I will say I always bring the bylaws and I bring them up. And then people get angry with me for bringing up the bylaws. <laughs> and then their duca starts, starts turning on me. Mm. And I find that to be interesting because I know that it's their distress, but I don't like being attacked for bringing up reality. Like, you, you know, you're saying um, uh, that there are complaints, but let's, let's stick to the purpose of us getting together and let's stick to the things that we can do to improve the experience. And nobody wants to hear it. Mm -hmm. I, I find, if they, I want to say this, I find that the people who may not feel that way, they get very quiet. And these are people one-on-one -on -one that I could have a very congenial interaction with, but when they're in a group, they behave really differently. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, so they kind of so, each know, other's reactivity and then distract from the actual agenda. Well, it becomes, it becomes unpleasant, and that's why people don't want to get together. Mm -hmm. I happen to have talked to, since that meeting, I talked to two other long-term homeowners, and I know that they agree with the problems that I am experiencing because I'm involved, meaning I'm concerned, and I'm bringing up what, what should we do or what can we do. And... Um, they just don't come to meetings. And I know that these people are good people and they don't want to be swimming in dukkha. <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah, so there we can see a very real uh, consequence <laughs> to dukkha uh, that now you cannot get something done in your association meeting. Um, yeah. Yes, that's unfortunate. Um, well, I, I guess what I'm, I want to say, I want to thank, I, I was thinking of uh, Peter, this kind of um, 
what I've what I've learned about the the you know the four noble truths and everything has been so helpful. It's just that at the moment, I mean, I can leave and um, feel badly, and then when I process it, then I understand, and and I'm I'm understanding it at the time, but when I process it, I understand that there is so much negativity around that we as individuals have the responsibility of dealing with our own dukkha as well as everyone else's. Yes, you you begin with dealing with your own dukkha and then you're more in a position of stability to not react to others' dukkha, I would say. Is, Is that something like that, Peter? Yeah. Uh, it. I mentioned before. There's three uh, forms of of dukkha, the dukkha dukkha, sankara dukkha, and viparanama dukkha. Uh, and earlier on in the conversation was about the embodied experience of of dukkha. The, the core of Buddhist practice. You know that the aspiration is toward awakening. But the core of the practice is really understanding um, objectively the interaction between the the uh, world of, of sensation, the embodied experience, and what the mind makes of it. And so that interaction is what we're trying to understand. How... When someone behaves or someone misbehaves in the context of what Sharon was saying, when someone misbehaves um, in a meeting, the idea is to be able to understand in the moment, experientially, the physical symptoms of that moment, that stimulus, and how the mind wants to get defensive or gets all caught up in wanting to be right or something like that and find a, a, a balance point so that you can take care of business but it's not it doesn't have to be experienced as distress there's, there's a quality of equanimity that you can experience, Sharon, <clears throat> in that kind of circumstance. And that's what we have to we have to recognize when we're in those kind of conflicted events that our first obligation is to cultivate equanimity. Mm-hmm. And then we yes. can then we can perhaps problem solve. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I I was I was actually um, striving to remain. Um, uh, how do I want to say? Seeing seeing somebody else's distress um, showing up in a really um, inappropriate way by being personally attacked and um, it, it having nothing to do with what my comments were. Um, meaning that I was being judged and 
people uh, who are of that mind will judge others and not even be aware of anything other than what their story is and what they are engaged in. And that's the ignorance. That's the ignorance you referred to earlier. Exactly. Exactly. And thank you for for confirming that because it was it was ludicrous the things that were being said, and they were so off topic. And these were two people that were sitting together behind me, talking over the president when she was talking, <laughs> and then they, it was just, it was almost ridiculous. But uh, you know, you can't tell oh. somebody well. You know, uh, check yourself. Um, I was trying to not retaliate with any kind of a a comment that would. I just, you know, pretty much stayed on whatever topic I was wanting to get across. But I was also being um, standing my ground too, without allowing the comments to be, which were ludicrous and very personal. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't understand grown-ups. And you know, we we, we think that grown-ups are going to behave uh, in a way that's civil, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> you know? And it was very, very. Um, I was thinking, yeah, well, I know it was ignorance. I absolutely know it. Well, thank you for sharing that very real-world example. <laughs> so. Um, that's definitely what we're talking about. Um, does anybody else have a question or something yes. they want to share? Yes, John does here in the room. Okay, okay. hi, John. Hi. I uh, had a great experience of Duca Duca today, so I really appreciate Peter's uh, three definitions of, of suffering because I have 11 teeth pulled uh, mm. as I begin my implant experience. And I have to tell you, I'm taking some anti-pain drugs, and in between, there is lots, and I have to drive to St. Pete to have it done, because I'm the best price for this University of Florida dental clinic. Anyway, I got myself into this several-month ordeal, and what I'm hearing is so funny, because people get so self-absorbed that they can't, uh, and that's what I think the gift of sitting is, is that you're able to, uh, uh, and you're hearing me uh, enunciate without teeth, so I hope that you enjoy it, um, is they can't break that bubble. They can't realize that, that they're hurting themselves. And this it's like a self-limitation. And when you are able to sit and distinguish that, how you create your own suffering, but then to break that bubble and, and try to uh, exist in reality uh, and, you know, contribute. It's like a lynch mob. You know, everybody's happy if everybody's doing the same thing except the guy getting on. So it is amazing to me how uh, interesting the mind can be, uh, but how much better it can be when it has the uh, ability to distinguish the self-absorption and uh, resolve something and move forward. You know what I mean? I want to say trumpets, trumpers. Uh, I had the same argument with my mechanic, whose son is such a trumper, but he doesn't understand the difference between um, lying and uh, you can't repair a car that way, you know, 
and like the appraisal of your house, three thousand percent different than what is fixing the brakes. Period. You know, so I think people need the experience. I think they should teach meditation in public schools. I really do. Just they are. People. They are. It's thirty-two. Yeah. Because it's it, it becomes a war in the long run. You know. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Definitely. Yes. I think. I think. Um, that is why, um, you know, a, a phrase from Pema is the freedom to choose something different. And I think this is where we're able to do that. When we, as you said, are able to get out of that bubble, when we're able to be aware and we start to uh, cultivate these wise relationships with ourselves and then with other, uh, we really do start to experience a freedom like no other and then we're also able to be more discerning in the real world in terms of what kind of action we need to take whether you know that's political or what's happening in our society solving problems um, and you don't have to hurt yourself you can distinguish it which is hard to do sometimes you get caught up in it and look like road rage you know what I mean you can oh yeah get on real bright lights like Right there at the stoplight because the guy doesn't know he's got his brakes on, much less considered stopping. Anyway, it's it's an amazing process. Yes, so I'm thank very you. grateful for the saving process. Sharon? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Sharon, and then Sean in the room here wants to say something too. Okay. Sharon? Um, I just wanted to mention I have a tendency to get caught up or catch myself getting caught up. And when I'm witnessing, when I'm seeing people, you know, I expect them to act a different way or whatever. And one of the, a couple of things that Peter's said to me many times in the past that's really helped is it, it creates some space is if you think I am witnessing suffering, um, that helps me to kind of not... It just puts some space between what I'm seeing and and me, you know, like me taking it on, um, if that makes sense. And the other thing is don't take it personally. Um, that phrase really helps me not take it personally. This is not, you know, I'm not a self that is needs to come up in defense of it. Um, it it's just their stuff. Um, but I was going to, Peter, what was the second one you said? The second kind of dukkha? Sankara. So last week or a few days ago, I had, I guess it was some kind of flu. It was different than normal, but I did have some nausea and I got caught up in, it, it immediately brought me back to 10 years ago when I had cancer and I had a lot of nausea and my mind started taking me to, oh my gosh, I have it again. This is it. I'm going to die. And you know how your mind just goes to all these places. Um, is that a Sankara? Yes, that's Sankara Dukkha. <clears throat> it's the Dukkha of conditioning. And it's, you know, your description is very apt in that you were traumatized by that fear when you, uh, your life was threatened by cancer. And um, so when a similar symptom comes up, nausea, 
um, your mind jumps to that conclusion that that must be what this is and it brings up all the old fears and you build a self around it. And that's, that's Dukkha. That's the Four Noble Truths right there. Luckily, at some point, I realized what I was doing and just went into paying attention to what I was feeling like, but not adding a story with it. Um, and eventually, then you get better and you feel really silly about the whole thing, about the whole thing but um, interesting. Yeah. Sean? Yeah, so um, some people were saying how um, some people are so focused on things, on like outward things that um, they don't like. Um, and then I just wanted to share an insight like that I had that like we have a sense that there's like an outward uh, world and an internal world or an inner world. Um, but like the insight that I wanted to share was just that like both the outward and the inner are like. Um, all appearing in one like sphere of consciousness, um, and but yeah, but we have a sense of the outer and inner, and um, there are so many things like both on the outer and the inner that seem to be like calling for our attention, um, and then I think that that is why training your attention um, is so important, is so that you can focus on what like so that your attention doesn't get pulled towards what causes suffering, um, and, and that you can more. Uh, focus on what's um, like really important to you rather than getting pulled in a million different directions um, and also I think that um, the question of what is really important to you is also worth exploring yeah absolutely but that interaction you just described there's a term for it it's called Nama Rupa which I've mentioned before because it's really important uh, Nama is the, the mental part the internal part and rupa is the sensational part, you know, what you see and hear and smell and so forth. And what you feel in your body, pain in your body and hunger and, and things like that. So being aware of nama rupa is uh, as just something that's happening in nature. That's a key part of this whole process of awakening. I think it's just very important to be able to keep that clarity, that little switch that you can distinguish so that you don't get too self-absorbed caught up in whatever it is. I mean, you know, you've heard, you know, various degrees of that and it, it's amazing how you can snap and, and get upset and that suffering can eat your life. So you gotta, gotta sit every day. Or carry the breath. Or both. You can do it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, anyone else have any questions or things they want to share? Good discussion. Okay, if not, then I think we can, unless Peter wants to talk some more, I guess we can uh, close a little early tonight. Peter, do you want to add anything? Just that... Uh... Next week, uh, Lily's going to talk about the dukkha that comes with parenting. Um, and those of you who are parents or have been parents, 
it might be interesting to tune into that. Or if you know someone who's parenting, to uh, uh, pay attention to what Lily is uh, going to be telling us about. She has two young boys. One of them just uh, entered school and the other one is, uh, I think, three or four. So, um, mindful parenting, I think, is really, really important. So that's sort of the the category that the talk's going to land into is how do we understand the stresses and strains of parenting so that they can be addressed with mindfulness and loving kindness and help the world change through helping children. Yes, I can't wait for that topic. <laughs> I was just talking to my friend who lives in France today, and she has a one-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> and just listening to her uh, with her one-and-a-half-year-old on the phone, it is a full-time job <laughs> being with a child. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, let's sit for a moment as we do here. Thank you for your practice. Wish you well and hope that we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to uh, interact with one another.